This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hi, hello, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk About Myths, baby! As always, I am that woman who hosts the show and quite enjoys exploring the ancient world with all of you. Live. And today I am here with another conversation episode in my Sparta series. Yet another fascinating episode where we look not only at what actually took place in ancient Sparta, but more importantly, what did not take place at all. I am joined today by Owen Reese, who runs the website Bad Ancient, a site dedicated to exploring common questions about the ancient world and looking at what is and is definitely not true about the ancient people and the rumors surrounding them. As you might imagine, Sparta comes up often. They have some incredible articles about misconceptions surrounding ancient Sparta and the things they did, or rather, didn't do. So we talk about just that. We talk about the idea that the Spartans performed a very special type of eugenics, with elders examining newborn babies for imperfections, which could get them tossed off of Mount Aietos, and how that never happened. We talk about modern misconceptions over things Leonidas said and how he said them, and we talk about a certain group of horrifying individuals who took their love of Sparta to a whole other level. 
The absolutely fucked up and wild way these misconceptions about Sparta connect with the misconceptions about Atlantis. See, the Nazis loved both of them and basically changed Spartan history to fit their narrative, a narrative which still then gets perpetuated today. Surprise, surprise. This conversation was absolutely fascinating, but I do have to warn you that unfortunately we had some like really severe technical and connection issues. So you'll notice there isn't a lot of back and forth between us. It's kind of a quick wrap up at the end. That's because there was a lag to end all lags and it made actually conversing very difficult. Fortunately, Owen was able to roll with the punches and and share so much information, even without much of my prompting. It's also unfortunately short because of the same reasons. Frankly, I am just so thrilled, though, that we got these 45 minutes because we had a great time and it was it's so important and interesting, even if tech failed us pretty miserably. The upside, though, is the audio still sounds pretty good. You probably won't notice besides there just being less talk between us. Editing, right? <laughs> This episode is seriously important when it comes to understanding Spartan history, so let's get right into the information that Owen had to share. Conversations, not the fun kind of myths demystifying Spartan tradition with Owen Reese. Okay, Sparta has become this really interesting idea among the modern understanding from everything from I was looking at Bad Ancients website and seeing a, a post about was Sparta communist. So I, I suppose it's it, it goes from everything to you know a, a supposed idea of a communist state all the way to this idea of them being this like military powerhouse of Western civilization and and the way that that has been misused you know by the darkest sides of of. Western supremacy and white supremacy all the way to just generally angry people wanting to utilize the idea of of Molan Labe come and take them for their guns and all these different things. So (laughs) this whole reason I wanted to do the Sparta series is to kind of address that. And I figured kind of throw it all into this one sort of episode on, on modern misconceptions and Sparta generally. Um, so yeah, what do you, what do you most encounter, I guess, on Bad Ancient in terms of Sparta? Like what is the thing that you're sort of faced with a lot in terms of how people see this this ancient Greek place? Well, place is probably the wrong word, but that's where I am mentally. <laughs> no, no, no. I think I think that's a good I think that's a good enough place as any. Um I, I, I suppose you kind of hit the nail on the head first of all, which is that Sparta is everything to everyone. <laughs> um we we do. I think at the moment there's a real association with far right extremism and the Spartans, but they're just one group. Um, you know, uh, the far left have claimed the Spartans. Uh, early waves of feminism have claimed the Spartans. Um, you know, um, even sort of run of the mill politicians claim the Spartans. Everyone wants a piece of them, um, and I guess the reason why they can all have a piece of them is because the evidence is so bad. Um, and because the evidence is so bad, you can make them whatever you want them to be. Um, so like, I suppose in terms of the website, in terms of bad ancient, the big questions we usually get are either about them as a warrior society, which in itself is a misconception. Um, and so, so many questions come from that starting point. So Sparta is a warrior society. So I'm going to ask you another question based on that. and in terms of like actual claims, so a lot of this focuses around Thermopylae, a lot of this focuses around their ability on the battlefield, um, but there's also a lot to do with their upbringing and um, their kind of society as a whole. Um, so like our most um, our most visited page is the page which covers um, the infanticide and whether or not the Spartans practiced a uh government sanctioned mm. killing of babies uh as a form of early eugenics um yeah that's probably the most 
popular. It's po- well, popular is the wrong word. Um, it's probably the most uh, prolific question and query we get. Is it true? <laughs> um, and I kind of kind of highlights the problem that you're always facing with Sparta because the reason why people think it's true is because our evidence says that it is true. <laughs> Um, and it actually requires um, a deeper understanding mm. of the evidence, a deeper understanding of the job of the historian and the archaeology to kind of pick it apart. But ultimately, um, I don't think, whilst of course we're going to, we will obviously focus on the more um, extremist use of the Spartans, um, a lot of this doesn't come from any malice. It just comes from a general reading of, you know, you pick up a book on the Spartans, their infanticide will come up, it will just come up as fact. Because uh, a writer called Plutarch said it happened, um, and if you treat that uncritically, why wouldn't you believe that? You know, um, mm-hmm. so I, I think it's also kind of important from the beginning to kind of acknowledge that you, uh, believing these stories, believing these myths, isn't a judgment on you. Um, I came into this area. I came, I came into Greek history. I was mm. in love with the Spartans. I was obsessed with them. Um, I bought, you know, I completely bought in to this warrior society. Um, you know, this warrior culture in Europe that, uh, you know, if I tried really, really hard, I could somehow emulate as a teenage boy. Um, you know, I bought into all that kind of construct of masculinity and everything. And that's what got me into it. And then as you uh, learn the craft of historian, when you, uh, you know, learn how to critically engage with the sources, you realize, well, actually, um, most of this kind of falls apart, but is equally interesting. And I suppose that's part of the maturing process as well, I hope. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating way to, of coming at it. For me, like, I my knowledge on Sparta for a long time was just like I had seen the movie 300. And I like to think that I didn't, uh, you know, ever think that it was particularly accurate. Um, but mm. it came out when I was like 18. And and so it was just like kind of that perfect point of, okay, well, this is like, a it, you know, back then it was it was a good movie. It was exciting. And then, of course, looking back, I'm like, oh, it's so racist, <laughs> even on top of all of the, the Sparta of it all. Um, but at the time, you know, it was like it was so interesting and and sort of unique from what we had and and then of course looking at it now and and everything is so so fascinating and I'm definitely going to touch more on 300 on a separate kind of episode on the on the show um but that's a Plutarch is is a source obviously that came up a lot in my conversation with Rule as well because I mean, I think he is he is both like our our most detailed source and our most like question mark source, right? Like he comes however many hundreds of years later and he's writing about things that, you know, he he thinks are accurate in whatever way that he thinks of accuracy. Yeah. Um, but then uh, is also just like the nature of how many hundreds of years come between the actual Spartan people and their customs and culture and Plutarch himself, like you said, are our best kind of source or most detailed, probably not best in, in terms of, you know, any kind of <laughs> accuracy, but it's so fascinating to have to kind of deal with, with that issue. And that is, you know, one of those things that is most difficult to explain to people of like, why it's not a great source. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Plutarch, I mean, when we talk about Plutarch, there's, there's kind of two sides to this conversation. One is he's 500 years later. Yeah. So he's writing over 500 years later to the kind of Thermopylae slash Spartan hegemony. So when Sparta's in the uh, kind of top dog in Greece, um, he's centuries and centuries and centuries mm-hmm. later than that. Um, Sparta has collapsed. Sparta, by the time uh, Plutarch is writing, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but Sparta's become a bit of a theme park. It is the Disneyland of Greece. Um, it's somewhere, you know, he's writing in the Roman period, although he himself is Greek. Um, and, you know, it, Sparta's a place Romans go to have a look. And, you know, there's kind of displays of supposed Spartan culture on uh, for you to look at and to take part in. And it's, it's just a fairground, really, um, showing the Romans what the Romans wanted or what other Greeks wanted Sparta to be, rather than what Sparta actually was. Um, so that, that's the one side, and that's kind of where Plutarch gets denigrated quite a lot. However, in his defence, Plutarch is a fastidious researcher. Um, you know, he was a um, he was a priest at Delphi, 
which is this kind, you know, uh, the so-called belly button of the the navel of the ancient world is the place where, you know, everyone is crossing paths. Um, Stories are being passed through the libraries and the books and the knowledge that he had access to can't really be ignored. All right. And actually, he's actually pretty good at telling us when he's using other sources. So he's, he's not a historian. And I think that's a common misconception. He's not a historian. And I think sometimes we treat him like he is. He is often a biographer. That's more what we're dealing with, with um, is a is an essayist and he's a biographer. Biography is not the same as history. Biography is usually for a purpose. Um, and Plutarch is often very open about his purpose, about judging the morality mm. and the behavior and the, you know, the, the kind of um, the decision making of, in particular, great men. He is obsessed with great men. And he does that through his famous parallel lives, where he takes a famous Greek and a famous Roman and basically compares them. He compares their lives side by side. Um, and of course, he then morphs their stories so that they look a little bit similar. Um, and he picks things that are alike and then kind of embellishes it so they run parallel. Mm. You know, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, you know, people like this. Um, and then he writes a mini essay at the end, basically saying who's the best um, and why uh, and how their lives compare. So really interesting, but it's not history. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not Herodotus at his best. This is not Thucydides. This is not Polybius. Um for all their faults, they are historians. They're trying to answer a question about what happened in the past and why it happened and how it's affected the present. Um, Plutarch's not really trying to do that. <laughs> He's just trying to tell stories and trying to learn things from these life stories. Um, so that's the kind of other side to Plutarch. He is a fastidious researcher and he is quite obsessive. Um but not a historian. So, yeah, Plutarch is our main uh, sort of our most detailed source. Because he goes through this biographical detail. So as a result, he really tries to um, fill out his stories. To take you through someone's life. Um, The contrast to this is, I would argue, our most reliable source, who is the the 4th century Greek writer Xenophon. So Xenophon, who is an Athenian by birth, an elite, rich Athenian, um, who ends up leaving Athens uh, in kind of exile, um, but spends a lot of time with the Spartans. He befriends a Spartan king called Agesileos. He actually serves in a Spartan army, um, or at least he's in the entourage of a Spartan army. There's even, um, he's given a house by the Spartans to live on Spartan kind of controlled land, not in Sparta itself, but in the kind of wider region. Uh, There's even a rumor that uh, his sons went through the Spartan educational process, the famous Agoge. Um, although I should say Xenophon doesn't tell us that. Uh, so if he did do it, if they did mm. do it, Xenophon did not admit it. Um, so he's probably our best source, um, but it's just not quite as detailed in the same way and comes with its own biases. You know, um, he is a good friend of Agesileos. So much of his history of the Spartans has Agesileos doing amazing things, uh, rather unsurprisingly. Um, so, yeah, our sources are suspect. Those are our two largest um, and immediately come with problems that's why in academic terms in historical terms what we talk about with the spartans is what's called the spartan mirage so the spartan mirage is this idea that we have so much evidence that talks about the spartans that it creates this image of what sparta was and we can see it we can see it so clearly and then you start to realize that all our sources are either hundreds of years later or Every single one of them is not Spartan. So everything we're reading is through the eyes of someone who is not Spartan. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is what Xenophon wants to show us of Sparta. What we're seeing is what uh, Aristotle wants to tell us about Sparta, what Plato wants to tell us, what, you know, even like Aristophanes and, you know, the comedy writers and the tragedy writers and all this, they're showing us a presentation of Sparta that they want or specifically what their audiences want. That's what we're looking at. That's the mirage and sort of our job. And you've got uh, lots of people joining uh, your podcast. I know who are a much better place to talk you through that than myself. But what a historian's job is to try and see where the mirage falls apart and actually what's the reality. 
what is actually going on in Sparta and what can we do with the evidence that stands um, to kind of make sense of it all. Yeah, it's it's funny. That's a term I hadn't even really heard before um, just like a couple of days ago. And now it's like, OK, it's going to I think it's going to take over kind of my life during this series is <laughs> like breaking through that <laughs> that Spartan mirage. Um, now to, to pull it back to one thing that you said earlier on on bad for when it comes to, you know, the questions you get asked on bad ancient. I realize when you're talking about that, the the idea of, you know, Spartans. Uh, the the question of whether they practice this like very early and, and troubling form of eugenics that's actually what spawned my idea to to create this this series on Sparta is there was all that um, uh, talk or there was those articles written uh, by Debbie Sneed a few or a number of months yep. ago now it's been a while um, but all about that idea of of whether or not they did you know dispose of of babies that weren't perfect. And and I think the the short answer is they didn't right that it, that yeah. wasn't really a practice of theirs is that accurate yeah 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 that's absolutely right so um, I mean the 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 expert on this at the moment is Debbie Sneed so <laughs> yeah so it's it's one of those where again our evidence tells us that they do mm-hmm. but that evidence is Plutarch so yeah so our there's two there's two elements to this one is whether or not the ancient world practiced um, the exposure of babies, um, you know, this uh, imperfect babies or babies that are not wanted by the family. Um, this is often closely associated with disability and the presence of disability, but it's not only associated with disability. It's also associated with possible economic strain on the family. So, you know, can you afford another child? things like that i mean um the, the most mm. common place we see this as you well know is myth mm-hmm. <laughs> um and actually historically we don't see a lot of examples of this <laughs> um but it's everywhere in myth um so uh that's the first thing and that's what debbie sneed's um article on this has done brilliantly i, I know she's also written on um you know uh free to access articles as well so they're definitely worth having a look if you want to look into the ins and outs of all that question Uh, it is fascinating Spartan angle is not only that they mm-hmm. um, threw away babies allegedly uh, that they didn't want. Um, it was specifically that babies were judged, and then the decision was made as to whether or not they were imperfect. The association here being specifically disability, disability, and um, a generic term for weakness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then the second point here is that this is not done by the family. Now, this is what makes Sparta strange in this in this sort of story in this claim. Um, it's the idea that the Spartan state made this decision. Now, this builds into a wider image of Sparta as an authoritarian regime, and it's the idea that the state controls everything. Um. So, you know, the baby is born, the baby is then sort of, um, actually, according to our evidence, the baby goes through a test of its own with the mother. Um, We're told that the mother bathes it in wine. And then if um, the child has an epileptic uh, seizure of some sort, um, then they make the decision to expose the child. it is then passed to a representative, an elder of the state, and then the state um, judges it again. And it's the idea of, you know, does it cry? Things like that, as well as a physical examination. And then the story goes that if they're found to have failed, they are thrown off a mountain into a pit. That's what Plutarch tells us. Not a single contemporary source of Sparta tells us this story. Xenophon doesn't tell us this story. 
Aristotle doesn't tell us this story. Plato doesn't tell us this story. Thucydides does not tell us this story. Now, in particular, what's interesting there is that Plato and Aristotle don't. Thucydides, he may just not know. Xenophon, he may just not want to tell us because he likes Sparta. Plato and Aristotle are the interesting absences because both of them mm-hmm. write basically utopian societies. They invent utopian societies. And in those utopian societies, they mention uh, eugenics. They mention this process as an idea. And at no point do they say anything about the Spartans doing it, which is mm-hmm. a little unusual and a little unexpected. So if we were going to find it anywhere, I would expect to find it. Plutarch, mm-hmm. Aristotle, we don't. Okay. So um, there's that's the, that's the problem with the written evidence. Another problem. We have found the pit. So there is a pit at the bottom of uh, uh, Mount Tegetus, uh, the, the main mountain here just outside of Sparta. And we have found the pit that they throw bodies into. According to the archaeological uh, surveys of that pit, there are, I think there's like dozens, if not hundreds of bodies, in fact, like lots of bodies have been found. Not a single one has been identified under the age of 18. Hmm. So this creates the impression that this might be where they uh, may well have, um, hmm. you know, done executions. This might be the place where they, you know, threw bodies or threw people to their deaths who were, you know, I don't know, prisoners of war, uh, criminals, etc., etc. You know, whatever you want to think. Um, we found the pit. We found where it happens. There is no child remains there. Not one. So um, the literary evidence is suspect and the archaeolo- archaeological evidence as it stands completely refutes it and this is where we then bring in the likes of the works of debbie sneed who actually goes well actually the entire idea that this is happening in greece at all is exaggerated so whilst we're trying to find sparta as being this kind of unique place that does it under state control our starting point is incorrect these things are unlikely to be occurring now that doesn't mean that never happens Okay, it doesn't mean this never happens. Um, there will be instances where families make these decisions. There may well have been instances where Spartan families made these decisions. But what we've got to get away from is this idea that it was um, regular. It was a common occurrence. And the other thing for Sparta is we need to get rid of the idea that it's institutional. Um, because any of the evidence we do have kind of suggests that's not the case. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that it's so interesting to to hear the full evidence on like exactly, you know, how how we know that this wasn't a practice. And of course, it makes sense. You know, it it certainly could be happening here and there. But the idea that it was a cultural practice is obviously the biggest the biggest issue. And it it, it is so sort of extra fascinating to look at it in, in the context of myth, because it really is such a long-standing bit in in mythology this idea of exposure but at the same time like in the myths it's always used as a way to to like strengthen the character make them kind of come back with a vengeance have you know them be raised by bears and thus be incredibly strong and and like a powerful warrior so so it is sort of like a, an added thing to suggest like, that that it was anything that happened in in reality because obviously that wouldn't wouldn't happen the same way and it is more just like a death sentence versus like a a sort of yep. strengthening experience for for the child um yeah I, it's something i hadn't really like heard about myself separately like this idea of them except for in 300 which of course is all based on the <laughs> and, and all of that so it, it's, yeah. it's interesting to hear it be as like a, an idea about Sparta but then also be so easily or not so easily because I know a lot of work went into that but so so obviously now um you know untrue yeah well the I mean like the the easiest way to dismiss this myth the story um is we know of disabled Spartans. All right. So um, the most famous example is the person I mentioned earlier, the friend of Xenophon, is Agesilaos, Agesilaos II, who was a king of Sparta. Agesilaos II of Sparta was born with some form of uh, atypicality 
with one of his legs. The evidence is very vague. Um, Greek terms for disabilities are annoyingly uh, lacking in specifics. Mm. So uh, the only way you can really translate the word that's regularly used to describe him is the word lame. So basically he has um, a mobility issue when he walks. Okay. So, uh, but what is clear from the evidence or pretty clear from the evidence is that he is born with this. So this is from birth. Um, whether or not we're talking about something perhaps like a club foot, or maybe we're talking about um, you know a real size difference between the two legs, we can't be sure. But we know it's clear. We know it's there. We know it's there from a very young age. Um, and his story is mm. made all the more interesting because he's actually the second son of the Spartan king. Now in Sparta, all Spartiates—that's the um, fully fledged citizens of Sparta—a very small number of people, I should point out. All Spartiates have to go through the agoge, have to go through this educational process. The only exception is the heir to the throne. Okay, so if you are going to be king of Sparta, you do not have to go through the agoge. If you are the son of the king and not the heir to the throne, you do have to go through the agoge. So Agesilaos had to go through the agoge as he was a younger son. Okay, so we have a disabled young Spartan boy going through the rigorous um, physical and mental torment that is the agoge. And uh, with Agesilaos himself, we're told that he not only went through it, he was considered the best in his year group, in his age group. So he excels in this process. Um, And actually, if you read uh, the biography, Plutarch's biography, to be fair, um, of Agesilaos, you really get the torment and the problems he dealt with as a young Spartan. Um, you know, the bullying, the constant jibes that he's getting for not looking right, for not being right, according to the Spartans. But he is allowed to go through the entire Agoge and he thrives as a Spartan in the Agoge. So at the end, he comes out top of his class. He's considered the best of them all. Um, so Agesilaos is a classic, is probably the best example. And to give you an idea of how Spartans internalize all their beliefs and internalize all their experiences, Agesilaos, when he becomes king, has absolutely no sympathy for any man who has a disability. So any Spartan who is hurt in battle or is struggling to walk for whatever reason, um, Agesilaos is ruthless in his handling of him um, is very much like uh, there's almost like this air of I can do it you can do it why are you complaining get on with it um, and that's the story of Agesilaos now the reason why this myth is so persistent and the reason why it's so famous as a myth of the Spartans is because of who particularly likes this story so as I mentioned this is probably the earliest example we have of a claim of eugenics So eugenics, literally good birth, um, is the idea Hmm. of almost a breeding program of people to get rid of what you consider the weaknesses in your race. People may see where I'm going with this. Um, And to eliminate races or people or attributes you don't want in your bloodline. Of course, this was picked up most prominently Hmm. by the Nazis. Um, who took this to a whole new level. So um, Nazi writers, Nazi scholars, but also Nazi politicians, you know, your Himmlers, your Goebbels uh, uh, and the like, um, were obsessed with Sparta. Hitler himself was interested in Sparta. Um, and this story is part of that, a part of the reason why. It's the idea that the um, Dorians, which is the alleged line of the Spartans, was an Aryan race, entirely invented in uh, 19th century Germany. As a concept, but it's the idea they're an Aryan race and that they attempted to produce a pure bloodline hmm. um, of a warrior race. Yeah. So this is why the Nazis loved it. This is why the Nazis um, and uh, the scholars in Nazi Germany were really pushing the story, pushing this idea and using it as yet another way of validating what they were trying to do. This was, of course, done uncritically, um, and ultimately, this is the uh, this is the threads that we're now trying to unpick. You know, I mean, ultimately, 
we're arguing over something because the Nazis really liked it. Um, and, you know, we're still at this point of trying to go, well, just because the Nazis liked it doesn't mean it's right. Actually, quite often it never means it's right. Um, so, you know, we need to get rid of the, we need to let go of these stories. Um, and just to kind of finish that point off, give you an idea of uh, mm. this. So the Nazis love the Spartans. They love Thermopylae. They love Leonidas, the story of that. Um you know, there's lots of famous stories about all that. The one person that doesn't come up a lot by the Nazis talking about the Spartans is Agesilaos II. Um, and you've got to ask the question, is that because of his disability? Is that because you can't hide this story of him? He doesn't come up very much in Nazi writing, uh, including school textbooks, history textbooks, things like that. Agesilaos, not a popular Spartan. Hmm. That is very interesting. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So as we kind of uh, have intonated and kind of gone over a couple of times the 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 biggest myth of the spartans is this idea of a warrior society and as a result so many of the other myths 
are born from that. Um, and this is where you find yourself having to, especially in like a project like Bad Ancient, where, you know, we take questions from the public without judgment, without anything, you know, it's just people going, oh, I've heard this. Is it true? Oh, I read this. Is it actually true? Oh, this is, you know, I was always under the impressions the Spartans were like X and, um, uh, you know, do we, uh, do we have any evidence for that? Um, and so often you find yourself having to go, oh, I have no idea where you got that from at all. So you have to go away and kind of find it and try and deconstruct the thought process that's got there. Um, like a really simple one is if you accept Sparta is a militant warrior society, if you believe that, it makes sense that they have a patron god. Because Greek cities have patron gods. Athens has Athena. There's a patron god. So Sparta must have one. Who's the god of war? Ares. So one common question we get is, you know, is Ares the patron god of Sparta? Or just the assumption that he is. Um, even though that's just not true. Uh, you know, the cult of Ares is very minor, if at all present in Sparta. Um, you know, the main god or goddess on the Acropolis of Sparta is Athena. Um, there's a couple of things that need deconstructing there. The first one is the idea of a patron god. It doesn't really work like that in Greece. The other thing is Sparta is not a warrior society, so they don't have to have the god of war as a patron. And thirdly, oddly enough, Ares may be the god of war, but he wasn't entirely liked. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to pray for victory in war, you didn't generally pray to Ares, you prayed to other gods and goddesses. So it's a different relationship with war, different relationship with gods and goddesses um, as a result. So that's kind of like a simple example of that. But like in the modern day, um, you mentioned the uh, the phrase, which is everywhere at the moment, uh, Molon Labe, which is this um, small, tiny two Greek word phrase. Um, which literally means come and, come and take them. Uh, the reference being uh, Leonidas at the Battle of uh, Thermopylae, uh, responding to Le uh, Xerxes, the king of Persia's request to lay down your weapons. He says, lay down your weapons. Leonidas says, come and get them. Um, as a story and as a moment in like, you see it in the film 300, they do it very well, very dramatic, very cool. I was a teenager when it came out. I love that scene. Okay, but uh, you know, there's a uh, there's a couple of things there. One is actually that that event didn't happen. Um, it didn't happen like that at all. Um, the only account we have of that event is Plutarch again, and um, he says the entire exchange is done through written letters. So whilst you might want to visualize Gerald Butler being very angry at Xerxes. What you should actually visualize is a very angry Gerald Butler scribbling on a piece of paper, you know, uh, and trying to pass this message on. Um, so that's the first thing. The story we have is 500 years old, uh, older than the battle. Herodotus doesn't tell us it. Every other account which mentions a conversation between the two kings doesn't have this phrase. It's only in Plutarch. That's the first thing. Second thing is it's been used by a lot of groups who are advocates for um, uh, the rights to uh, bear arms and to own arms, you know, gun clubs, etc. Um, now, I'm a Brit, so I don't get I don't wage into these conversations. Uh, gun culture is not something we have here in Britain. Um, I'm not going to get into that. Um, but the thing that is interesting is the idea that the Spartans would have agreed with the right to bear arms. If you think Sparta is a warrior society, if you think Sparta is an armed society, this makes perfect sense. You know, soldiers, professional soldiers living their daily lives um, would be armed. Of course, they'd be happy with that. That makes sense. Um, and actually, all of our evidence says that that's not true. The Spartans were not an armed society. They did not openly carry weapons. And actually, when you dig deeper, it makes perfect sense that they don't carry weapons. They don't carry weapons because they are outnumbered. They are outnumbered by their enslaved population, the so-called helots, who they are perpetually terrified, perpetually terrified that the helots will revolt. 
against them. Now, it's hard to gauge just how outnumbered they were, but some estimates give, you know, uh, seven times as many helots as there are Spartans. It could be as many as 10, 10 times as many. By the, uh, th uh, the sort of turn of the fourth century, the number of Spartans is down to below a thousand people. The number of helots will be in the tens of thousands of people. So they're grossly outnumbered, petrified of a slave revolt. You would not have weapons readily available. Think about that logically. You would not have weapons readily available uh, for them to go and get, uh, for them to take from you. Um, so actually, this very idea of Sparta as an armed society, the idea that Sparta would uh, agree with Molon Labe, they would agree with the idea that you should give us your, uh, you should be able to carry weapons, is not true. The other thing is, oddly enough, the idea that Molon Labe is this idea of defiance against your own state. So in the US, a lot of this at the moment is about this debate about whether or not the state is going to introduce some form of gun control, whether or not they should introduce gun control. You know, whatever side of the debate you're on, I don't really care. What interests me is that the idea that you would defy the state, the idea that you would use the Spartans as a model to defy the state is ludicrous because the Spartans gave up everything for their state. So anything that the the, the, um, the Ephors, the Gerousia, that's their council, their assemblies, whatever the Spartan state and the two kings told them to do, they would then go and do. Right? That's generally it. If you defied the state, you would be exiled, if not um, killed. Um, the very idea of Modon Labe, the very idea of the stand at Thermopylae, is about following orders. So there's a famous uh, epitaph to the dead, uh, you know, the idea, you know, um, tell the Spartans passerby, they hear, according to their laws, we lie, is the epitaph given to the Spartans who died at Thermopylae. So the idea that Molon Labe is now being used to defy government and defy the state just boggles the mind. No Spartan would agree with this. And this kind of gives the idea that, you know, Sparta is, uh, the way Sparta is used in the modern day is not the reality of Sparta back then. This is not something the Spartans would have agreed with or in any way related to. Um, and uh, this is the kind of ludicrous nature of, of what's going on and how the Spartans are being used. Uh, and Modern Labi is perhaps the most prominent, but it's just one of... of several examples it's always been so interesting to me to to sort of take in all of this i mean for one i'm canadian so and and certainly where i am in canada it's a similar thing with the the you know gun control and everything is not not really an issue um but but my people in my country were using it um as a sort of anti-lockdown um creed but it was yeah. similarly the idea of like standing up to the state and some kind of, you know, so-called tyrannical government and, and using Mullen Labe in that way. So sort of equally fascinating, just less to do with arms, but more to do with like human rights or whatever, you know, freedoms, uh, all of that. Um, but at the same time, like, I mean, the, the funniest thing that always stands out to me beyond the fact that all of this took place in letter writing, which is sort of in itself like so you know, anticlimactic and, and undramatic, um, but also just that like Persia did take them. It's not a great example. Like Persia took the, everything, and and so how has that become this idea of like standing up to the state and and you know adhering to your rights? Like, well, you're, they are gone. Persia Persia snatched it all, and sort of. But yeah, you know what what does that really mean when when Persia did take everything? And it's just I, that's all I wanted to say to people who use that that phrase. It's like, okay, well, yeah, it, they were taken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it is one of those uh, kind of ridiculous stories. Um, I think Thermopylae is often forgotten that it's a defeat. Now, I say that anyone who knows Greek history will not forget that. Um, but in terms of like the general public, it's just a battle that kind of, it's just another battle that's named. It gets evoked every so often. Doesn't mean a lot. Um, to most people and so other than it's a famous battle and there's this stand um, and you do sometimes hear it referred to as a victory 
and you have to correct that and go, it's not, it's not a victory, they lost. Um, a good example of this is um, the president of Ukraine, uh, President of Ukraine, Zelensky, um, when the, uh, the latest invasion of Ukraine occurred, the analogy of Thermopylae and the analogy of the 300 quickly came up. And Zelensky went on record very early saying, we don't want to be a legend like 300. We want to actually survive and win. Don't Basically, what he's saying is don't make us a European martyr that fits your narrative. Um, his point being, give us arms, you know, let us fight this battle and actually try and win. And what's even more interesting about that is, you know, the fact that a head of state rejects the 300 analogy is actually quite uncommon. But he rejects the 300 analogy. He doesn't want to be the heroic Spartans making this stand for freedom and everything else because they lose. What's more interesting is now go away. <laughs> you can Google it, look at it on Twitter, any social media, you will find them. Go and have a look how many people are still referring to the uh, the war in Ukraine and the Ukrainian people as being like Thermopylae, being like the 300, even when the head of state says, don't do it. That's not the story we're telling here. That's not the story we want this to be. So it's almost like our own mythological uh, narrative of European history, of a very particular type of European history, has Thermopylae in it. So we will always refer to it when we see something even closely relating to it occurring. So just because Zelensky says, um, we don't want this analogy, is not stopping people from using it. It's not stopping politicians from using it. It's not stopping um, reporters and journalists from using it. It's not even stopping historians from using it. The amount of ancient historians I've seen make this analogy is actually starting to drive me a bit up the wall. Because um, one, it's a poor analogy, uh, which is just annoying in its own right. And two, they've specifically rejected it. So I think we should kind of respect that and uh, not use it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, yeah, I remember seeing all of that too. And just, it, it's so it's so interesting, all of the, the connections to Thermopylae, because it's like, it, it was such a loss and they everything was taken and it you know they may have ultimately won that war the greek people but they certainly didn't then or there and and it just sort of just continues on with all of this mythologizing and and skewing of the history and the the spartan people and and everything oh it's just so fascinating and and so problematic and weird and um, to the listeners listening to this, if it, it sounds disjointed at all, we've unfortunately had like a very bad connection. Um, but I'm so grateful to Owen for for dealing with this and and still doing the absolute best to, to work through this conversation when we can unfortunately uh, barely hear each other. Uh, so, but this has been absolutely fascinating. So I'm really appreciative and thank you so much for doing this and for dealing with the technological difficulties but also just speaking to me and and recommending others to to speak with this for with me as well for this sparta series it's it's very exciting thank you so much no th thank you so much for having me on well thank you for being so understanding uh if, if this makes it in or else i'll just add it in in afterwards but is there anywhere uh that people can find you where you want to be followed or or the wonderful bad ancient project uh yeah yeah so if you follow i mean I'm, i live half my life on twitter uh <laughs> usually find me there um uh but also uh yeah the bad ancient website i've talked about is badancient.com um also has a twitter feed and a facebook page and the like um so yeah you find me there um come say hello always happy to chat about anything ancient Ugh, nerds, nerds, nerds. As always, thank you so much for listening. This conversation was so great, and I'm so grateful to Owen for joining me. 
I'm just sorry we had such trouble recording it and that it's so short as a result. But huge thanks to Owen for both coming on the show in general, but also for dealing with these frustrating tech issues super well, so kindly. Honestly, it was so great just being able to keep talking about these topics, even when we weren't entirely sure the other one was even still there. But it worked. Honestly, with how much trouble it we had, I'm, I'm shocked it turned out so well. So I am thrilled. But also a huge thanks because Owen was the first person I reached out to about this Sparta series because of his website, Bad Ancient. And he gave me the contact info and suggested I reach out to both Maria and Rule, who ended up being such absolutely brilliant guests on the show. And they provided such important history and insights. So yeah, just huge thanks for so many reasons. I am so proud of the Spartan series, not least because it's getting me to dive into history and I think it's working out pretty well at least for someone who spends 99% of their time telling stories about a mythical world of nonsense Uh, and next week we have more episodes we are talking all things Sparta both historically and now looking specifically at the ways that it is misunderstood both intentionally and unintentionally and the history itself the things that we think about Sparta that aren't remotely true and how some of those things are actually super problematic if not outright dangerous And then I'm speaking with Stephen Hodkinson, who is such a prolific expert on Sparta that he has honorary citizenship from modern Sparta. So yeah, I think you're going to be pretty interested to hear what he has to say too on all of those same topics. And don't forget, I will be doing a Spartan Q&A episode after the series is done. So please submit your questions at mythsbaby.com slash questions. Obviously, I won't have explored everything that you guys want to know or answered all the outstanding questions you might have during this series itself. So this is your time to shine and my time to clarify and expand on things that you might want to know more about. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She handles so many podcast-related things. And for this series, Michaela gets an extra special shout-out because while she always helps me with everything I ever need, in this case, she prepared an absolutely incredible amount of research for this series. I am talking everything I could ever need. What a lifesaver. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all for listening and chiming in on social media. You are awesome. I am Liv and I just love this shit so damn much. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation 
by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.